Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. And hello everyone, this is Michael Biamonte, Clinical Nutritionist, with another episode of the Candida Chronicles. It's February 16th, 2016, and today we're going to be discussing uh, the term and the condition called dysbiosis. Dysbiosis is correctly what Candida should be actually named. Dysbiosis is a condition which exists when we have an imbalance in the intestinal flora. Dysbiosis essentially means you have bad life in your intestinal tract. When one has dysbiosis, they may have candida, they may have parasites, they may have harmful bacteria living there, they may have a combination of all three. What essentially dysbiosis is, when you break it down simply, it is a condition where the friendly organisms and friendly bacteria, which normally inhabit your digestive tract, are now out of balance and no longer as dominant as they should be with the harmful organisms. So for a visual sake, you could think of dysbiosis as all your friendly acidophilus and friendly bifidus and friendly probiotics are now being overrun by bad microbes like candida and bad bacteria and parasites and the like. In actual fact, when someone has candida overgrowth, they have dysbiosis. The question would be whether or not their dysbiosis is more let's say, fungal or yeast versus bacteria versus parasitic. Everyone with candida has dysbiosis. Everyone with candida has bad flora, harmful flora. They have a certain overgrowth of parasites and bacteria simultaneously with the candida. This cannot be helped because the same environment in the intestinal tract that would host candida would also host harmful bacteria and different harmful parasites. The areas of the intestinal tract that have dysbiosis will tend to attract harmful parasites and harmful bacteria that we might consume and draw them into these areas where they can actually take up residence. It's most likely impossible to be able to find any one particular person who only has candida. 
to a greater or lesser degree, and that's the key phrase regarding this particular conversation, it's to a greater or lesser degree. All people who have candida also have bacterial and parasitic dysbiosis. The people who are in the worst shape would obviously have an assortment in very high levels. This is why the use of certain antifungal drugs is really not effective against candida at all. It's merely because these antifungal drugs only kill candida. They are not broad spectrum. They do not kill harmful bacteria and parasites. So if you're lucky enough to have these drugs disinfect the candida from your intestines, the harmful bacteria and parasites will survive. And therefore, they will continue to live and they could then inhibit the regrowth of friendly bacteria, friendly probiotics, because you've only eliminated one out of the three possible criminals in your intestinal tract, let's say. So the correct way to deal with a dysbiosis would be to target all three categories of yeast, parasites, and bacteria and disinfect the intestinal tract of all three. This way you're more guaranteed having your friendly bacteria re-inoculate the intestinal tract and being able to stick without being interfered with by bad bacteria or parasites. And this is why harmful bacteria and parasites give rise to candida in general. It's because they, occur, they destroy friendly flora or prevent friendly flora from coming back and sticking. So when a person has dysbiosis, they have an overgrowth of yeast fungus, bacteria, different types of parasites. This leads up to the dysbiosis. It inhibits the life of the friendly bacteria and it causes not only fermentation to occur in the intestinal tract, but it would also cause putrefaction. Technically, if someone had just candida, their main problem in the intestines would be fermentation. But because this is nearly impossible to have, you always see the person who has candida slash dysbiosis having both fermentation and putrefaction going on in the intestines. The end result of fermentation in the intestinal tract would be different aldehydes, which are alcohols produced by this fermentation of carbohydrates and sugars in the gut by yeast and certain bacteria. The end result of the activity of bacteria and its actions on dietary protein is putrefaction. This causes a toxic colon and a toxic colon doesn't support the health or the life of friendly probiotics and friendly flora. One of the best tests to determine the level of putrefaction in the intestinal tract is the Indican test, which is a urine test. And this is part of the Biamonte home urine test, but it can be done separately by labs. 
And this test measures the amount of putrefaction that's occurring. Proteins in the intestinal tract, which are not properly digested and then acted upon by bacteria, will have as an end result putrefying material. One of the uh, extracts, let's say, of this putrefying material is a chemical called indole. Indole is produced in your colon by the action of harmful bacteria putrefying your protein, particularly tryptophan. And when the tryptophan putrefies, indole is created. Indole is then sent to the liver to be detoxified and converted to indikin. And indikin is what you urinate out, which we then seek to isolate and measure in the urine test. This tells us how much putrefaction you're getting. So it's essentially showing how dirty of a colon you have. Now, dysbiosis is actually a very, sim a very common problem when you understand this. When we say dysbiosis, we're literally talking the same terms, and we're encompassing everything that you've ever been told or learned about candida. Everything that you've been told, learned, heard, read about candida applies exactly to dysbiosis as a condition. Because remember I said earlier, it's virtually impossible, it would be theoretical only, to have a person who has dysbiosis and not have a combination of candida parasites and bacteria. So candida is always included in dysbiosis. Often it's the dominant imbalance. So therefore, when we talk about dysbiosis, we're literally talking about candida at the same time. This could help make it more familiar to you. The main point is that when you talk about dysbiosis, as opposed to candida, you're talking about the possibility of different types of parasites being present. Having these parasites do whatever individually they do in your intestines. For instance, if the parasite was blastocystis hominis, we know that that parasite would weaken your immune system more so than, let's say, Giardia, which is also a very formidable parasite, but its symptoms are more diarrhea, fever, and things of this nature. Where with blastocystis, the actions of blastocystis are much more in suppressing the immune system and amplifying the effect of other pathogens in your intestines. So there are individual types of dysbiosis that are all unique because of the bacteria, parasites, and yeast which make up that particular dysbiosis. Suffice to say, generally, when we say dysbiosis, we're talking about an intestinal flora imbalance that's occurring because the predominant healthy flora has now been demoted and is now no longer large and in charge. And instead, it has to take the seat back seat to these other microbes. When you have friendly flora, and friendly flora is dominant, as it should be, the amount of health problems that you have are very, very little. Health problems just will naturally clear up and correct themselves. A major 
action of dysbiosis is to cause inflammation. Now, chemically, inflammation can be rather complicated. When you study inflammation, you're going to hear words like cytokine and all these chemical words. But we can make it simple. Inflammation is a condition where the area or the tissues become inflamed. Inflamed tissues are generally uh, swollen, let's say. They're locally painful. And the body tries to constrict or restrict the area of inflammation so as not to allow it to spread, which is an interesting idiosyncrasy about inflammation. This is why when you have a injury of some type, the area swells locally. It becomes red, swollen, hot, painful to the touch, etc. This is the body's method of trying to restrict the inflammation to just that area and immobilize the area. You want to immobilize it so that no further damage particularly can come to that area. Dysbiosis produces inflammation of this type. The inflammation that you have when you have dysbiosis is more intestinal, and sometimes it could lead to an infection, sometimes not. Inflammation is not a cinnamon for infection because they're two different things. Inflammation, though, is at the root of almost all illness. This is the key thing that's been learned by alternative practitioners over the last 20 years, let's say thinking practitioners, is that there is a host of chronic illnesses which are all based in inflammation. Hay fever, periodontal disease, atherosclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, even cancer, gallbladder problems, the list goes on and on. They're all rooted in inflammation. They express themselves in different ways. A person thinking of inflammation in a base way thinks of his hands or fingers being swollen and red and painful because of an allergy or some harmful chemical coming in contact with the hands and fingers, which is true on that scale. Inflammation on a large grand scale, however, would be an inflammation of an entire system or area, which then can lead to further disease. Generally, when you're thinking of inflammation, you think of it in terms of pain, localized pain, in terms of heat, because it will be a more... That area will be hotter or warmer. You think about it in terms of redness. Also immobility. There's a loss of function or movement as the body tries to keep things constricted. There's a swelling that will occur, which is a puffiness. And these are the general signs of inflammation. Inflammation, though, throughout the body can be similar, but not as necessarily acute.
And there are different blood cells that are responsible for inflammation. When you do a blood test on someone, if they're very inflamed, you will see the certain blood cells typically associated with uh, a CBC and WBC, which can be elevated. But the markers generally of inflammation throughout the body would be C-reactive protein. This is a very typical chemical that you would find, which you, you would see to be elevated. When you have inflammation, you also typically have a release of histamine, which causes a lot of the actual symptoms. When you have inflammation, you get increased permeability of tissues. Not necessarily permeability in terms of leaky gut, but just permeability from vessel to vessel and tissue to tissue. And there tends to be, of course, vasodilation. This is the swelling and the redness that you see that can be possibly attributed to the histamine release that occurs. Inflammation is very bad because Inflammation interrupts the normal life cycle and lifeline of tissues, glands, and organs. And it interferes with the exchange of oxygen and nutrients going into the organ or tissue area and then with the waste products coming out and the waste products being released. And this eventually can lead to cellular death. So this is one of the worst, but ultimately inevitable, processes that comes from dysbiosis. And of course, the way to handle it is to reverse the dysbiosis. There are many things you can do to try to intervene with the inflammation itself. Uh, there are many, many products being sold nowadays on the internet and elsewhere that are all meant to deal with inflammation. Uh, going back to quite a few years ago, one of the first products that was ever involved with inflammation in the health food industry was bromelain, the pineapple enzyme. People found that if they took the pineapple enzyme and the papaya enzyme, which is bromelain and papaya, inflammation that was obvious to them would dissipate. As we became more sophisticated, we learned about cytokines and other types of chemicals, monoamines. All these chemicals that you hear about are involved in the release of histamine, mast cells and basophils, uh, basophils are involved with this. And as we learned about that, we started to learn about vitamin B6 and vitamin C being natural antihistamines. With cytokines, we learned that they, they very well acted in viral conditions and tumor conditions. And interferon was originally called the activating force when we were dealing with cytokines and was very important in the maintenance of chronic inflammation. As we became more sophisticated in science, we learned about fish oils. Omega-6, omega-3, omega-9, and now omega-7 and 10, which have the ability to reduce different types of inflammation. Uh, 
And in the last few years, uh, nitric oxide has been found to have its own role in handling inflammation. There is a particular genetic defect which involves cytokines, which I spoke about on the last podcast when we spoke a little bit about the genetics of candida. Uh, This particular genetic error is called TNF-alpha, and it is a a genetic error which tends to cause tremendous inflammation in the body. It inhibits osteoblast differentiation, which means the immune system can't tell the difference. Osteoblasts are important to osteoporosis and other conditions involving calcium. And you could think of uh, TNF-alpha as being a genetic error which predisposes one to a lot of inflammation. Not a good thing. There are many illnesses which are associated with inflammation. To go through them all here would take quite a lot of time. But generally anything with an itis or an osis is inferring that there's inflammation. Other conditions that don't necessarily share those names would be things like acne, asthma, all autoimmune diseases, celiac, prostatitis, any type of hypersensitivity could involve the inflammation. All inflammatory bowel illnesses, pelvic inflammation, Rheumatoid arthritis, sarcoidosis, vasculitis, uh, even interstitial cystitis, anything but an itis is inferring there's inflammation. What very often is causing the inflammation are these microorganisms which are found in, within the category of dysbiosis. So what's interesting is that as we look to the future and we look at what Alternative medicine, in particular, has learned, and also what alternative medicine has acknowledged from more uh, mainstream medicine, we see that we've learned that inflammation is really the true process of disease. Uh, Many, many years ago, this was not known. What's interesting, I find, is that In my field of alternative medicine and alternative health, we've uh, always been the one to look at what mainstream was doing in college research and whatnot, and then interpret it or piece it together so that it becomes something functionally functional that you can then use. So if in the last 20 years, medical science and medical research is finding that different states of inflammation are the underlying causes of, of disease, It's been an alternative medicine where we've been able to package that into something that's understandable and then treatable and correctable so that you have some kind of functional gain from this. And as we look at inflammation and we start taking it apart, we find that the base and cause of inflammation is dysbiosis. This has manifested itself in many different ways talk about the the brain-blood barrier, or the blood-brain barrier, rather. Uh, Talk about intestinal inflammation. 
looking at hepatic detoxification, looking at allergies and chemical sensitivities, looking at how inflammation affects the nervous system, how inflammation affects the cardiovascular system, which has been something that's been overlooked. Um, I would personally rather have my cholesterol elevated above 200, which is what most medical doctors are afraid of, and yet have a high HDL and have very low inflammation levels, then have my cholesterol at 130 with a low HDL and have high inflammation. What the average doctor doesn't understand, the one who is unfortunately very drug-oriented, is that disease in the cardiovascular system doesn't come from cholesterol. Cholesterol is a bystander. Disease in the cardiovascular system comes from inflammation, which causes cholesterol and calcium and fibrogen and these other substances to then form clots or form restrictions in the intestinal tract, which then interfere with proper circulation. To call cholesterol the, let's say, cause of the person's heart disease would be the same thing like calling the grave digger the cause of death. The grave digger is not the cause of death. He just happens to bury you after you're already dead. It wasn't his fault. Cholesterol itself is an innocent bystander. Cholesterol is very important to the body. Most people don't know this. Cholesterol is converted by the body into hormones, which is one of its primary functions. It's converted into pregnenolone, which is the base of all hormones. Cholesterol has functions in the immune system, which are very important. When you actually look up the physiology of cholesterol, you'll be amazed at the viewpoint of, of many doctors who think that you should have your cholesterol as low as possible. Well, the lower you have your cholesterol below a functional level, the higher the incidence is of strokes. This is something that was discovered back in the 70s. There was a definite rate, re relationship between the rate of strokes and low levels of cholesterol. The lower your cholesterol is, the higher your risk of stroke is. There are various reasons for why that is, but for the purposes of this podcast, let's just, let's just uh, take it for face value so that you can see the ridiculousness of the low cholesterol fat. Low cholesterol leads to low hormones, which leads to exhaustion. Low cholesterol can lead to a higher rate of strokes. So to just simply say you want your cholesterol as low as possible is, is pretty ridiculous. It's showing complete ignorance of everything modern science has learned in the last 10 to 20 years. There is a, direct, a, a definite correlation, I feel, between this type of viewpoint and the viewpoints in dealing with inflammation. Inflammation is the cause of the problem. It's not the bystander. Inflammation is what causes cholesterol to stick to your arteries or the lining of your blood vessels. Cholesterol just doesn't do that.
There has to be some something causing causing it to do that. Inflammation is typically the cause, because when you have areas of inflammation, you have areas where cells are partly destroyed and partly ruptured. Next time you have an inflamed finger or toe or a lip, let's say, study it carefully and you'll see how those cells are ruptured. In a blood vessel, when you have a ruptured cell, what happens is you have a, the production of fibrogen, which is a sticky protein, which goes to that area where there's a rupture to try to heal it or cement it so that you don't get a leakage of various body fluids and, and whatnot. Well, when you have a buildup of fibrogen, calcium next is attracted to those areas and calcium sticks itself to those areas. All in the name of trying to heal the area and heal those cells which have been disrupted by the inflammation. The next thing that happens is the cholesterol that's passing through your bloodstream will then stick to this mound of calcium and fibrogen and this is the anatomy of a clot. If you ever wanted to know what a clot was or a blockage was in your cardiovascular system, I have just described it. And it begins with inflammation. It begins typically with the high level of free radical activity, which damages the tissues. This is the process of inflammation affecting these tissues. And then when the tissues try to heal themselves inadvertently, a clot is formed. And when we look at this from hindsight, we see that very, very uh, typically, dysbiosis and inflammation are the cause. Because the intestinal tract is so large and it affects so much of the body, dysbiosis becomes even that more serious because when you have dysbiosis, you unfortunately have a condition which can spread inflammation up and down the body and have it affect whatever the weakest link is, generally speaking, of the person. There is lots to read on this. I'm giving you today uh, the very, very basics of all this. But in reading about inflammation, there is a tremendous amount of data that you can, you can get. And when you're looking at this data, one of the things that you want to remember is that the majority of the inflammation in the system is going to somehow stem from dysbiosis. It can occur from dysbiosis just due to the inflammatory nature of the bad flora that you get. It can occur from dysbiosis simply because in a condition of dysbiosis, you develop a lot of deficiencies due to the imbalanced flora. You have a lot of toxicities, which, which the standard intake of vitamins and nutrients are not going to be able to overtake. So keep these things in mind when you're looking at this. There have been quite a few doctors who have all agreed that death begins in the colon. And uh, if this was, this was never more true... And death begins with the, within the colon and from the colon due to dysbiosis. And remember, everyone, that if you have any questions for me, you can always email me at drb at health-truth.com. We always welcome your questions.
And we will be once again live on the Candida Chronicle podcast this Thursday at 4 p.m. And until then, I wish you the best of health. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. Michael holds a Doctorate of Nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330.